1 Corinthians 9 and verse 24. Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? Run in such a way as to get the prize. Everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. We do it to get a crown that will last forever. Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. I do not fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I will not be disqualified for the prize. This morning, the topic of my discussion is the Christian as an athlete. We live in a world that loves athletics. Uh, I think the Olympic Games are evidence of the pervasive love of athletic competition, of personal sacrifice, of achieving goals that seem unreachable for individuals. And we, and I think rightfully so, respect that. We live in a country that loves sports. I enjoy sports personally. The ancient world loved sports, and two times a year they had gatherings in the Greek world for the Ismithian Games, which were held in Corinth, the setting of this letter, and the Olympic Games, which were held every four years. The ancient world loved this entire experience, was fully acquainted with it. Those that won prizes at these athletic events like the Ismithian Games uh, came back and were heralded as heroes. They were given a lot of honor and a lot of praise similar to what our stellar athletes seem to experience in our day. The Apostle Paul knew that there was a love for athletics and a respect for what it took to be a champion caliber athlete. And as he writes this passage of Scripture, and he writes in the book of Timothy, he reflects on this athletic image as a reflection of the experience that we as Christians face. In this text, Two particular athletic events are brought to the front. One is the event of boxing. One is the event of running. Probably not the short sprint race, but a long marathon race and, or a boxing event where endurance was of supreme value and importance. The Apostle Paul is, sim- is, is saying something like this. The effective Christian is like an effective athlete and it, is, it becomes for him an analogy of how to see the Christian experience. I think one of the things that Paul is kind of going after here is this. The Christian life is a battle. If you want an easy life, don't become a Christian. The Christian life is a difficult life. It is a life that involves challenges and sacrifices and selflessness. The Apostle Paul was fully aware of the sacrifices that it cost for him to become an effective follower of Jesus Christ. And when he begins this passage, he says, Do you not know that in a race all the runners run, but only one gets the prize? And then, drawing off of this analogy of racing, he, he draws it down to the church, to individual Christians. Because in the analogy of a race, everybody's running, but in a race only one gets the prize. The one that gets the prize presumably has been sacrificial and selfless in his or her training and achieves the goal because of the sacrifice then Paul applies this analogy of sacrifice for the sake of achieving the ultimate goal to the Christian experience. And as he does it, he he kind of brings it down to the level of church life of brothers and sisters in Christ. You, brothers and sisters, implied 
run in such a way as to get the prize. That is, to successfully complete the race, finish the boxing match on top, be a winner, be successful in the Christian experience. In verse 25, he says this. He says, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. The word competes is a fascinating word in the original language. It's the word everyone who agonizomize, that's the Greek word, the immediate English connection comes up, doesn't it? Everyone who agonizes, struggles, and this is what, when you watch people run, I'm sure when people see me running through my neighborhood like they did yesterday, when it was hot and humid and I wasn't liking the experience, they saw on my face this, this agony. Everyone who agonizes, everyone who is willing to sacrifice for the cause, goes into strict training. And what he's saying is this, there are attributes of successful athletes that run across the board, meaning they, they, these attributes show up in the life of every effective athlete. Now, I want to look at what it takes to become an effective athlete via this text, not so that you go out of here saying, I want to go jogging, I want to go lift weights, but so that you go out of here saying, I before God desire to be like Paul desired. I desire to be an effective Christian in the world that I live in. Understanding that running the race for the Christian involves agonizing, striving, working hard, fighting through struggles. And Paul is saying to be an effective Christian, to run the race that God has set before us, we as Christians need to enter into strict training. There are habits in our lives, there are characteristics of the lives of every successful Christian. And I want to just point to three of them this morning. The first one is this. Every successful Christian, as with every successful athlete, enters into strict training. Verse 25, everyone who competes in the games goes into strict training. Now, you may be asking yourself this question. How does Paul know that that's true? How does he know that that's true? Well, if you go back and study the games that were conducted in Corinth, here's what you'll find out. In order to compete in those games, you had to certify or guarantee that you had entered into 10 months of strict training prior to the event. So Paul could say, everyone who competes in these games goes into strict training. 10 months prior, and then the last month prior to the race, they had to come into Corinth and subject themselves to specific training activities in order to even compete in the games because they were concerned about what? They were concerned about the quality of the events because that meant a greater audience and it meant a greater income. And so what happened is every athlete who was going to compete in those games had to come into, had to guarantee, certify 10 months of training ahead of time and then a month of intensive training prior to the games. If you could not certify 10 months and if you could not come and, and practice and train diligently for that month in the gym and in the stadium prior to the event, you were disqualified. Okay, which leads us then to the end of the verse. Paul's concern is, I'm concerned that I myself might not be disqualified from running for the prize. I don't want to be disqualified from the Christian life. That's what Paul's saying. So then he comes back and says, here are some attributes or some practices that an effective Christian puts into place so that they can run the Christian life well for the glory of God. So the first one is this. Everyone that, that goes into the event trains diligently. 
perseverance and strict training every day. Folks, if you want to be an effective Christian, you need to learn what it is to discipline yourself daily to be God's man, to be God's woman, to be God's young person. He says here they exercise self-control. In the old King James, it says this. It says they are temperate in all things. It's a fascinating word, isn't it? What does it mean to be temperate in all things? It it means to not be overindulgent, to exercise self-imposed limitations, self-imposed sacrifices, self-imposed restrictions, because you know that there is a higher goal that you desire to achieve. Everyone who enters into the games practices self-denying hard work. That's what Paul means in verse 25 when he says they go into strict training. Successful athletes do this. They do something that most of us aren't willing to do. They exercise the restriction of their liberties. They deny themselves sleep, food, recreation time, so that they can be effective. You know, the bottom line is this. The difference between good athletes and the rest of us is this. A willingness to sacrifice deeply for the cause. Any of us who watched any part of the Olympics understands that a man named Michael Phelps is a man of sacrifice. And he's also a man who achieved goals that caused Mark Spitz and other great athletes to say he is probably the greatest Olympic athlete that has ever lived. Speaking in terms of what? Well, they're focusing on the prize, right? They're saying, hey, he has six medals from four years ago and eight more this time and is likely to return and win more. Okay? And there's this focus. You know, when when Time Magazine put out the picture of uh, of Michael Phelps, what did they show? They showed all the awards. I went and did a little research on my computer in terms of what, what kind of training and strict discipline did Michael Phelps willfully and personally subject himself to so that he could become a great Olympic athlete. That, that, my mind's thinking, what's behind this? You know, some of the writers say, and many people have made this observation, it's easy to look at Michael Phelps and see that he was built to be a swimmer. His wingspan, tip to tip, is six foot seven inches. Okay, for the average man, it's six foot. It's an advantage. Foot size, size 14, double jointed in the knees, which gives him a significant advantage. Many have nicknamed him the dolphin. But when you look at the Olympic events, the swimming events, and realize the small margin of victory that one one-hundredth of a second, eight one-hundredths of a second. In your mind, you've got, you got to start saying to yourself, you know what, this guy didn't just jump in the pool and win at that level of competition without first undergoing strict personal training and discipline. I read up a little bit on this part of his life. Asking the question, what is it that makes someone like that, an athlete like that, like Michael Phelps, unique? And one writer put it this way, it was his ability to be at it, and listen to this, hour after hour, day after day, year after year. I've got to be real honest with you. I don't think, for the sake of swimming, that I would have made the sacrifices that Michael Phelps made, even if I had the talent. If I th- in fact, I think we could argue that there are many people 
in the world that we live in who may be equally talented but not equally committed. What made Michael Phelps successful was his devotion to the task, and I just love these statements, hour after hour, day after day, year after year. He was asked to describe his daily routine, and he, he put it succinctly in four words. Eat, sleep, train, repeat. Eat, sleep, train, repeat. And I, you know what? For the sake of swimming, I, I'm just not there. I'm not there for the sake of running. He had a level of commitment that resulted in historic victory. He trained for six hours a day, a day, six days a week, without fail, even if it fell on Christmas. He was totally, totally dedicated to this strict training program, and it made him a world champion, swimming over 50 miles a week, which equals about, out to about, in training, eight miles per day. One writer said, but ask him what makes him so special, and he will tell you this, quoting, I love the competition, and I love to train. I love the competition and I love to train. That's what drives a great athlete. And it's what makes a great servant of Jesus Christ. Paul's saying if you want to be a successful Christian, you need to deny yourself rights and privileges. As Paul has been describing. Remember chapter 7 and chapter 8. Paul's been talking about these personal sacrifices. Chapter 9. That he made to advance the cause that God had called him. The race that God had called him to run in. Paul knew that to be effective as a Christian leader, as a Christian man, as a servant of Christ, he would have to make choices to give up personal rights because success in the Christian life demands self-denial and discipline. So if you go back to chapter 6 and verse 12, remember the statement that Paul made, all things are lawful for me, but not all things are what? They're not profitable. They're not beneficial. They don't advance the cause of being a servant of Christ. Michael Phelps had to realize that if he wanted to be a championship athlete, he would have to give up and sacrifice sleep. He would have to sacrifice nights out with his friends. He would have to deny those things because there was a strict training regimen in his life that had a purpose, that had a goal. Runners who don't train will fail. Flabby soldiers can't fight. Paul says to Timothy, Timothy, my son, train yourself for the purpose of godliness. It is profitable for all things. It affects all of life. Bodily exercise has temporary benefit. I personally choose to exercise bodily because I know that I experience certain unobservable benefits in my life. Okay, I don't care if you know that I exercise. I do it because you know what? It makes me function a little bit better during the day. At 2 o'clock in the afternoon, I'm not falling out of my chair in the office. It makes that kind of a difference. I know that if I give up a little bit of time, a minimal amount of time, that it makes a difference in my life. Same thing is true in regard to your relationship with Christ. Sometimes it will mean turning off the TV. Sometimes it will mean adjusting your schedule in the morning, setting the alarm a little earlier, and not hitting the snooze button. So that you can get up, spend time with God, prepare yourself. Why? The life that God's called you to live is hard. It's not easy. It's a hard life. And we need to be willing to train ourselves diligently. That is the first characteristic of an effective servant of Christ. Jesus said, if you want to come after me, you need to say goodbye to yourself. That's what Michael Phelps did every morning so that he could be in the pool, I think at 5 o'clock. Think about that. To swim for six hours so that he could destroy his opponents. No. 
He wasn't that naive, but so that he could win by one one hundredth of a second, by eight hundredths of a second, because he knew the competition was stiff. And to succeed as a team, as a church, we need to understand this call to selflessness, to strict training that makes us effective servants for Christ. So an effective athlete is committed to training diligently. A, an effective athlete also does this. They remember the goal, okay? They are focused on the reason. Michael Phelps constantly thought about how he could overtake Mark Spitz's record. And that thinking drove him to discipline himself for that goal so that one day he could stand with more awards around his neck, more medals around his neck than Mark Spitz. That commitment to that goal altered his daily life. And I just think about this, day in and day out, hour in and hour out, month in and month out, year in and year out. His life was affected. Why? Because he made a decision that this is the goal that I am going to live for. And whatever it takes to get there, I am willing to make that sacrifice. Remember the goal. I love how Paul talks about in this passage, it is some of the most powerful territory in Scripture in terms of being memorable. End of verse 25, they go into strict training. They do it to get a crown that will not last. But we, now notice how Paul has expanded this, not I, but we, the body of Christ, those who are blood-bought and redeemed by Jesus, we do it not to obtain a temporal prize that fades away. We do it to obtain a prize that will last forever. Do you love that? The fame that Michael Phelps experienced on that day has already begun to what? It's begun to fade. I, I remember when Mark Spitz just achieved the, the almost unthinkable and impossible in his swimming events. I remember that. I remember the glory of, you know what? When I hear Mark Spitz's name, all I think is, okay, he won a couple medals. Great accomplishment. But I'm not, it, that, even that glory, the aura of it, just it, what happens? It fades away. Paul's saying it has a temporal value. In the, in, the, in the games in Corinth, they were given a, a pine or laurel wreath that they would wear to demonstrate that they had won. But you know what happened to that wreath? The leaves would fall off and its glory would fade and it would be cast aside. And all you would have is the memory that, yeah, I accomplished that. I want to ask you a question. Who, if you know the answer to this, don't, don't, don't say anything, okay? Who won the 100 meter race and the 200 meter race in world record time in the last Olympics. Raise your hand if you know the name of the person that did that. Okay? Well, think about that. I don't think Hussein Bolt would be very happy with three of you raising your hand. You know, in the newspaper, you know what it said? Fastest man ever. And he is. He is. But think about that. If three out of this crowd Remember that. What, what does it tell us about the nature of earthly accomplishments? They have temporal value. And they are quickly prone to fade away. Paul says, I remember the goal of the Christian life. It is that what I do has an eternal consequence. Peter put it this way. He said, seeing then that all these things that distract us shall be destroyed. What kind of people should we be? Since the accomplishments of time don't last forever, since they are exceedingly temporal in their value, what kind of people should we be? We should be people who are focused on a goal that will matter at the end of our life. 
that will matter when our life on this earth is done. What is the goal this morning that you are living for? The Apostle Paul in 1 Timothy chapter 4 can make this exceedingly powerful statement. He can say, I have fought the good fight. And by the way, this is the last writing from the Apostle Paul. It's the last thing he says after 30 plus years of devoted, strict, diligent, effective service for Christ. He is at the end of his life. Is he happy or sad? Is he disappointed or is he, is he looking forward with great expectation because he committed himself to a worthy goal and cause? He says, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now, there is in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day and not to me only, but to all who have longed for His appearing. That's a fascinating statement, isn't it? Paul says, I am at the end of my life and I, with great joy, look forward to the curtain on this life closing and the curtain on eternity opening where I will stand before the Savior for whom I have sacrificed everything. Paul was focused on a goal in his life that changed his life just like, like every human athlete focuses on a goal and must have a focus goal if they're going to be a superior athlete in their event. And I, I think about this. With that goal, that prize in mind, think about someone like Hussein Bolt who was a, a, just an incredible runner. Do you think Hussein Bolt, when he went to the track, complained the whole way to the track? Saying, oh, I've got to go for training today. Do you think Michael, Michael Phelps woke up every morning saying, I can't believe I've got to go sacrifice another day to swim a little bit faster? Do you think that was his attitude? Lacking joy, going through the motions? It's not what I read when I read about him. What I read about him was a, a desire to train, a desire to go after it. Why? Because the goal was motivating a transformed heart. The goal was motivating all of the sacrifice that was involved in being most effective in the events that he participated in. And I believe the Apostle Paul is a good illustration of that. Paul, you don't find Paul complaining about the sacrifice. You find Paul focusing on the reason for the sacrifice. And if you go back into chapter 9, what is he saying? I give up all these things so that I may win some to Christ. You see, that's the goal. People whose lives are transformed and changed, not only in time, but in eternity, because they know the Savior. They do it for a temporal price. Paul says, we as Christians live with this picture of eternity in mind. One day, I will stand before Christ and I will give an account of myself for the things that I have done. What Paul wanted to hear, go back to 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 2. Well done, good and faithful servant. What is required of athletes? Strict training and a well-focused goal. The last thought I'd like to look at this morning is this. That goal, Paul's going to see, say, must be maintained. A boxer in this analogy, a runner in this analogy, third thing, must maintain a clear purpose or focus in their life. Okay, they must maintain a clear purpose, focus, a reason for why they live. To be an effective runner, to be an effective boxer. Verse 26. Therefore... Because I want this crown that will last forever, verse 25, 
Therefore, I do not run like a man running aimlessly. And I do not fight like a man beating the air. Okay, two pictures. A boxer goes into the arena with a very specific target in mind. He wants to strike that target so that he can be successful. They're not shadow boxing in competition. Why? Because boxers that don't have aim, as one writer said, boxers without aim end up counting stars. All right, you have to go in there with a goal. My goal as a boxer is to take out that opponent before he takes me out. And while you're in that ring, that is the, the constant motivation is a diligent focus on the goal. The purpose of all the training comes down to this. It's like runners on a, on a, on a racetrack. They need to know where they're going in order to achieve that goal. A few years ago, I was going to visit a friend. Uh, I needed to go down 31 and then get on 78 and head east. As I was going down 31, my mind got started thinking about something. And all of a sudden, I, I realized I wasn't in Clinton on Route 31. I was in Flemington. And I called my friend and I said, I, said, I, I am making great time. Okay. <laughs> but in my mind is what I was thinking about. Okay, we're going to get here, get there, everything's good. But I said, I'm going in the wrong direction. Okay, which meant a lack of aim or a lack of focus meant a failure in spite of good progress. If you've ever gone to uh, the soccer games of children like four to six years old, you understand that they don't quite get the aim or the goal. Dave Markle is coaching his younger children in soccer and he tells me it's like a Pac-Man event. All right, wherever the ball goes, everybody. The goal to them, I want to put my foot on the ball. I don't care where it's going. I want to get my foot on the ball. As kids get older, they don't want to do that anymore. Why? They understand that if I'm going to be effective as an athlete, as a soccer player, this ball needs to go in the, in the goal of the opponent. And that maintaining that focus, the purpose for us as a team is to work together to get the ball down from our goal, away from our goal, down to the other end and into the net. That goal begins to affect all of their behavior as they compete. In the Christian life, it is vital that we maintain a clear purpose. How does Paul do that? Look at verse 27, and this is more of the, the stronger part of this text. He says, I don't, I, don't, I don't run without aim, I don't fight like a man beating the air. No, I beat my body and I make it my slave. Two powerful statements. I beat my body literally means to hit below the eye so as to deliver a knockout blow. Think about that. What is Paul saying? My flesh that draws me away from God needs to be kept in check. So Paul says, I think in the King James it says, I buffet my body. I repeatedly keep it in check so that what happens? He says, I make it my slave. I get it to do what I want it to do, that which it is reluctant to do in and of itself. That's what every good athlete knows. When I go out jogging, I can tell you this, I, I have a hill, about a half mile into my run, I go up a hill towards John Tadona's house. And I think about John Tadona, and that's what makes, it able, makes me able to run. Now, as I'm going up that hill, here's what my legs are saying. You don't feel that good today. And uh, we want a break. If I'm going to finish that run and get the benefit of that run, you know what I have to say? I have to deny, and, and I just, if, if you're a runner, you know this, your body is sending you all kinds of messages. Your shins hurt, your feet hurt, 
your hip hurts, your muscles are burning, you don't need to run that far today. I can't tell you how many times I'm going to stop at my house when I come past the driveway. What I really need to do is run to the end of the cul-de-sac to get the full two plus miles. My body's saying, no, it's too hot, it's too humid, uh, you know, you're just too tired, you'll do more the next time. All these rationale. here's what you have to do. No, you are my slave. This body's not you. Okay, every good athlete knows this. I have to deliver my body and its messages a knockout blow so that I can be effective. Same thing is true in the Christian life. The flesh versus the spirit. Flesh versus the spirit. Paul says, I have to keep my body in check because it wants to move away from God. It has very self-centered tendencies. And if I am going to live effectively for the cause, I must maintain a clear purpose and focus in my life. Most of us tend to serve our bodies. Most of us tend to serve our flesh. When to eat, what to eat, how much to eat, when to sleep, when to get up, when to go to bed. Most of us are slaves to this. And Paul's saying if you're going to be an effective Christian, you can't be a slave to this, just like an effective athlete cannot be a slave to their physical passions. They need to learn to bring it in check. And here's the way that the New Living Translation puts it. Paul says, I am training it to do what it should do, but is reluctant to do. Okay, I love that statement. I make it my slave. Paul, what do you mean? I am training my body to do what it must do in order for me to be effective. I am saying no to its passions and pleasures. I am saying yes to the goal and purpose that God has given me for my life. Nothing is sadder than an aimless life. And I would argue this in the world that we live in. Aimlessness, I would say, is prevalent and sad in Christianity in America. And I ask myself this question, why is that true? Why is this passage so right on to the world that I live in, to my life? Why is that so true? And I would make this argument. I would argue that we live in a culture of options. There are so many things to be done. So many things that could be done. I, I did this just personally, out of my head, sitting at my desk, probably on Wednesday. With this thought in my mind, there are many distractions in life in America. I must learn to guard my life against the distractions because if I don't, I can't maintain a clear purpose and focus in my life for the glory of God. As a dad, this is the list off the top of my head. I have my job. I have marriage. A wife to take care of. I have my kids. I have the phone. I have email. I have my home phone. I have a cell phone. I am a taxi service for my children occasionally. I have the needs of my friends, of my kids, uh, and their athletics uh, needs in relationship to the car. Time that's spent in the car, driving place to place. I have a lawn that I want to take care of. I have landscaping that I want to pick the weeds out, out of. I have a list from my wife of things that she would like me to accomplish. I have to eat. Uh, I have to exercise. I want time for leisure. I need to spend time in church. I need to serve others. I need to cultivate vital relationships. I need to evangelize the lost. I need to counsel people who call and have needs. I, I want to go shopping. I need to help out in the house. I need to sit down and watch TV. I need to catch up on the internet. I need to see what's happening in the news. There's a, a, an election this year. I need to take care of my finances, my friends, personal devotions, prayer and time in the Word of God, family time. Continuing education, needs of aging parents that start to arise on the screen, planning a wedding. That, that's incomplete. Ladies, please do not sit down and do this this week. I sent this to one of my friends and said, Is there anything to add to this? He said, Yes, sleep. 
Okay? Like, yeah, you got to do that too. I, he said, now I'm depressed. Okay. Oh, man, we live in a culture of so many options. And it threatens to call us off the track. But when we're called off the track, God's purposes for our life, when we're pulled away from them, we waste our lives. And we threaten hearing from Him, well done, good and faithful servant. Let's just run it through. If I'm going to be an effective Christian, I need to be diligent in the disciplines of the Christian life. I need to remember the real goal of the Christian life. You know what the real goal of the Christian life is? To the glory of God, to affect as many people as possible for the kingdom of God. Christians and non-Christians. That's what, if you look back in this text, in this text, that is the driving theme. There are people in your church life that need your influence. There are unbelievers in your life that need the gospel of Christ. Paul says, I do all these things so that I may win some. I sacrifice all these things so I won't, chapter 8, stumble a brother in Christ. What is he concerned about? Evangelizing the lost and edifying those in your sphere of influence, in your family, in your church family, those brothers and sisters that know Christ that need help. Paul says, I do all this. And I, I make my body my slave. Why? Because when Tim Hopkins has a night free at home, I want it bad. And sometimes I think about a need that I could go and meet because I have a free night. And the question becomes, will I make my body my slave so that it will obey the purposes of Christ? Folks, I think this is critical for where we are as a church family. In a culture of options, how do you narrow it down? How do you make appropriate decisions so that your life is focused on an appropriate goal and so that you can maintain that focus by saying, these are the purposes for which God created us as His children. We must live by those purposes so that God's work can grow. So that our influence on the lives of those that don't know Christ can grow. So that we can make a difference where we live. Paul says, I want that so much that I... I beat my body and I make it my slave so that after I have preached to others, I don't become a castaway. I don't become disqualified from the prize that God so gloriously and graciously wants to give us. Paul's purpose, positively affecting others. And if you look at the end of verse 23, you find a very fascinating thing. Paul says, I do all this, and he's talking about the sacrifice earlier, which is now focused on in the last few verses. I do all this for the sake of the gospel, so that it will go forth and so the people know Jesus. I deny my desire for acceptance by speaking of Christ with people who aren't open to the truth about Christ. Paul says, I do all this for the sake of the gospel, that I may share in its blessings. Folks, what is Paul saying? He's saying the same thing that Michael Phelps said to himself every day. I want to get the prize. My goal is to win more uh, gold medals than, than, than Mark Spitz. That was his goal and that drove him. Paul's goal, affect as many believers in Christ as possible. Affect as many unbelievers with Christ as possible. And he adjusted his life all around that kind of a purpose. Your purposes determine the choices that you make. The purpose for the church are worship, evangelism, discipleship, fellowship, and ministry. Build your life around those purposes. Let those purposes determine what needs to get checked off the list of so many things in a culture of options. 
Become skilled in decision making. Seek wisdom from the Spirit of God. Say, Holy Spirit, I look at this list and I can say this personally. I look at that list and I am simply overwhelmed in my flesh. And the Spirit of God doesn't give us discernment to understand where to apply our time and our efforts. We'll miss the mark. That's why the Bible says, walk in the Spirit and you will not fulfill the desires of the flesh. How do I beat my body? Walk in the Spirit. The flesh says this. The Spirit of God says this. Always go with what the Spirit of God is saying. And as you do this, always remember, always remember that you're on a team. You're on a team. Michael Phelps achieved his goal of eight gold medals because of the performance of others. If you watch the freestyle relay, you know that Michael Phelps did not win that goal individually. He won it as a team. This church can't achieve its God-given purpose apart from every one of us fulfilling our God-given responsibility. What is Paul talking about here? He's talking about commitment, basic commitment. Sacrifice, making ourselves slaves to God's purposes in our lives and in our church. Remember, You're part of a team. And then as we close, let me just say this. I I could not read this text without thinking about my Savior in the Garden of Gethsemane. In his flesh, he wanted to reach for the bench, right? That's what he wanted to do instead of the finish line. And he cries out to Father and says, Father, If it's possible, my desire, my body is saying, let this cup pass. Let the pain, let the self-sacrifice, let the becoming a slave and a servant to others, let it pass. Nevertheless, and here's the heart of the competitor, here's the heart of the Savior, agonizing, exact word in the garden, pouring out his tears, drops, sweat drops, as if it was drops of blood. Here he is. The Bible says literally in the Greek, agonizing. Father, if it's possible, let it pass. But I want your will to be done. But folks, if you're struggling today with what it means to commit or to reconnect with what it is to be a devoted follower of Christ who is effective in the race, who wants to run, if you're struggling with that, look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Hebrews 12 and verse 3. Consider Him who endured contradiction of sinners against himself, this twisted world that Jesus lived in. He endured that for our sake. And and, and the writer of Hebrews says, if you're struggling with staying strong in your faith, Hebrews 11, Hebrews 12, look to Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, the one who finished the race before us, so that you do not grow weary and lose heart in the race. What does the writer of Hebrews understand? He understands human nature. He understands that from time to time, you and I get tired. Our commitment weakens. And when it does, what is he saying? Look to Jesus, look to Jesus, look to Jesus. I started preparing for this sermon. I said, oh, this is Communion Sunday, and I'm preaching a passage that has nothing to do with the cross. And yet this is a passage that has everything to do with the cross. Jesus would not have gone to the cross if he was not diligent in his pursuit of it. He could not have gone to the cross if that was not the goal and purpose of his life. He could not have gone to the cross if, it, if he did not maintain focus in the garden. Father, here's what I want, but more than what I want, I want your will to be done. And for him that meant the cross. Where my sin debt fell on him. 
Remember his sacrifice? Remember his willingness to buffet his body so that you and I could be set free? And he endured that. He chose that willingly and freely so that you and I can have the hope of heaven. Let's bow our heads together this morning.